Well, hello. Hello. Welcome to the uh, third installment of the uh, Insight uh, Talks at the Apple Store. Um, I was very honoured to be invited by the good folks at Australian In Front, uh, Damien Estrope and Lorena Mercado. So thank you very much um, for inviting me to talk here. I, uh, I'm a Sydney-based journalist. I uh, work in print. Uh, I've worked in radio, television, and for the past five years, uh, online, which I guess is uh, the digital media. So I guess that's uh, the primary reason why, why I've sort of been invited to talk to you about my experiences. So um, some of you may know me from my print work. Some of you may know me from my blog. Uh, and some of you possibly don't know me from a bar of soap. Um, for whatever reason, some of you may have been you know, moving towards the... Um, from the checkout to the door. So whatever brings you here, I, um, I hope that there's something you may be able to take away from it. Um, even if it's the you know, salient advice, do not start a blog, uh, which I'm only half joking when I say that, but um, any other blogger would probably um, sympathise. So, uh, look, I thought I'd just kind of start with um, some boring stats, um, being a journalist. <laughs> we love to bore people with stats. And, um, I mean, does anyone really have a handle on how many blogs there are. Uh, well, according to AC Nielsen's blog Pulse, which is a really cool uh, sort of blog monitoring, monitoring sort of um, website, uh, as of right now, there are 160,691,331 uh, identified blogs um, and 64,761 were launched in the, tw in, the, in the past 24 hours. So it's a you know, the blogosphere, I mean, people keep coming up with figures to sort of say that, you know, blogging is dying and social media is killing it and Facebook and Twitter have, have killed it. But, I mean, it's still very much a, um, a very dynamic medium. Uh, everyone's jumping into it. I think, I don't think anyone would um, surely disagree with the statement that, you know, most bloggers aren't journalists. Uh, and, you know, that's actually a great thing because, um, you know, there's enough journalists out there and they have, uh, you know, their opportunity to, to, to sort of, you know have their say with, with the publications that they work for. Um, but obviously, you know, social media and, and blogging has really given a voice to a lot of people who, um, I mean, you know, might want to work in the in mainstream media at some stage. Uh, maybe they're just, I mean, there's retailers, there's all sorts of people, there's kids. Uh, you know, one of the world's best known bloggers is, I think she's now 14, Tavi Jevonson. So, uh, you know, there's kids at school uh, blogging in their bedrooms. There's um, people all over the world. Uh, Journalists certainly use uh, social media. I mean, there's all sorts of reports about, you know, the degree to which more mainstream media um, journalists uh, are using social media to sort of source stories. I mean, Twitter's become a really great uh, source of um, story leads. I mean, the Megan Gale story last week, I'm not sure how many of you followed that, the, where Megan Gale was uh, in a cafe and she um, overheard a couple of girls having a basically bitching about her, her her inclusion in the most beautiful people list, and then she immediately went onto Twitter and shared that with her what is it, 37,000 followers, and and City Morning Herald's Georgina Robinson saw that and was the first to pick up on it, became a story. I think it was on the front page of the Telegraph the next day. So there you go. There's plenty of stories that are being um, born on Twitter. Um, obviously uh, launched by a um, launched by a, a celebrity. Um, why don't more journalists, I mean, if, if, you, if, if you take uh, any newspaper or, or any, um, you know, television program, any uh, magazine, and you, and you sort of ran through the masthead and all the people who work there, 
and you wanted to see how many, just Google their names, and, and most likely the publication they work for will come up first. Um, whether any of them are on Twitter, whether any of them are, you know, on Facebook, obviously. Um, I mean, you know, Google indexes, indexes you depending on sort of how active you are in those areas. And uh, I think you'll find that while there are some journalists who, uh, who are involved in blogging, uh, possibly for their, for their employers, um, a small percentage might have their own blogs. Um, I mean, most haven't. And I mean, you know, why is that? Why don't more journalists, you know, jump into the blogosphere? Well, my personal theory, I mean, this is just anecdotally, um, there's a couple of reasons, and I, mean, I include myself in some of those, and one of them is that if, if your job is, uh, you know, chasing stories, checking facts, uh, you know, trying to keep your job by not, not losing a story, I mean, the last thing you want to do after you get home after potentially 12 hours in the office is, uh, is you know, do five blog posts to keep your blogging audience happy. Uh, so a lot of them just don't have the time. Uh, technophobia, possibly, maybe a maybe a, a factor in that. I mean, um, plenty of journalists you know, use new, new technology, but a lot of them, uh, you know, just produce stories, and uh, and then the publication, all that you know, the engine, the publication that they work for, processes them. So that's potentially another uh, factor. Um, I, I think also, and as as look, I, I my own personal experience here and. As a deputy editor of the a Weekend magazine, Weekend Australian magazine, um, said to me when I was talking to him at a function about blogging and why don't you blog, and he said, well, I actually want to be paid for what I do. And that's actually a very good point. I mean, everyone who blogs would love to be paid for it, but journalists, of course, it's their uh, profession and it's their craft. Uh, it's what they do for a living, and they don't necessarily see why should they be dishing it out for nothing. Some of them have recognised the kind of branding potential of having a website and... Um, possibly just keeping a small blog running. But, I mean, as any blogger, any bloggers here would, would be able to attest, I mean, blogging is, is a hard slog if you keep at it. And no, a number of us take, um, you know, we have um, bloggers block or, uh, you know, we take a bit of a hiatus um, because we have to sort of obviously continue with paid work. But, um, yeah, so I think in, in, in the case of many journalists, it's a question of kind of show me the money. And uh, the money comes from the big publishers who probably were at one stage a long time ago independent publishers and they, did, they became very big. So, um, and in my own case, I mean, I, I blogged for mainstream outlets for two years before I actually went out on my own. Uh, and I could have, I mean, I, I blogged because I was being paid for it around specific fashion weeks. When those fashion weeks expired, I mean, I could have continued to blog for Fairfax and news.com.au. My, my kind of, and probably it would have been a good idea just in terms of, you know, Google indexing and just, you know, I mean, just getting, continuing to sort of have a presence there. But, um, my opinion was at the time that um, if I'm going to blog for nothing, I'll blog for myself. I'm not going to blog for Fairfax or News Limited, quite frankly, because they're selling advertising around it. So anyway, but um, how did I get to the point where I was blogging? I just, um, the short answer is push button publishing. <laughs> um, but the long answer is um, by a, a number of mainstream media outlets. I mean, um, and I just thought I'd run through that rather quickly. This is really the original version. I think... Um, this is a publication that most people probably have never heard of uh, unless they've lived in France or they lived in France actually in the 90s because uh, it's called Actuel. That's actually one big cover and then four small ones. And it's not just about drugs and boxing and, uh, <laughs> and Andy Warhol. And, um, I think it's kind of... I consider it personally significant that I sort of got involved in the media with an independent publication um, and they don't become... They don't, they don't become more sort of independent than Actuel, which was this quite extraordinary... I mean, everyone knows about the Australian magazine Oz, which was uh, very big in the 60s. Well, 
you know, Actuel was that in, in France. I mean, I, it, it had several incarnations. Uh, I sort of chanced upon it, literally by fluke, in the, in the 80s. But um, short, long story short, it, it was launched by a fantastic journalist by the name of Jean-Francois Bizot, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago from cancer. But he was this sort of wealthy, bourgeois French guy who inherited a lot of money, uh, and instead of blowing it on, um, you know, women and cars or men and cars and, you know, sports cars, he actually invested it in this fantastic magazine. And uh, he also launched a radio station in 1981 called um, Radio Nova, which is still going. Actuel sort of folded in the mid-90s. But, um, the, but just to put it in perspective, I mean, the French airwaves had just been deregulated and uh, Radio Nova uh, was a very experimental um, radio station that was all about kind of world music and actually played an incredible role in the launch of African music sort of to the world. Uh, <clears throat> Actuel was this current affairs magazine but with a, with a pop culture uh, focus. So it was, I mean, they did extraordinary things. Um, they used to send, I mean, I used to... I mean, I wound up there because someone I knew, actually it was my boyfriend at the time, was working at the radio station. So I, I wound up sort of hanging out there for two years and uh, just observing. I mean, if someone had said to me, if you want to have a sort of two-year internship in the pop culture epicenter of Paris, uh, I mean, I couldn't have chosen a better place. So, I mean, actual every month, its journalists used to go out somewhere in the world and do some amazing investigation. I mean, they were really great at sending people undercover. Uh, they sent someone into the Vatican, um, to see how far he, how high up he could get without any credentials, <laughs> and he actually managed to get uh, quite high up. They they uh, did a, a fake version of L'Etoile Rouge, which is the um, the Red Star, which is the was, was the Russian military newspaper, and distributed it um, in Afghanistan, which was I mean I, I think at great risk to a number of people who were involved in that. Um, they sent a guy back to his own high school six years after he left to do an undercover investigation into education, and no one recognised him. So um, I just used to, I, I was hanging out there at the time, I was actually um, making clothes. I was always interested in, um, I mean, I'd, I'd done a, an arts degree in university because I really couldn't work out uh, what I wanted to do. So I just did an arts degree for three years um, so I could um, have three years to work, work out what I was going to do. And I just studied English, fine arts, French, and wound up being in Europe, uh, as I said, met, met my boyfriend at the time in Amsterdam, of all places, uh, followed him to Paris, and that's how I wound up there. So. Um, at Actuel, I was doing things like, um, I mean, I, 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 they asked, kept asking me to do things like uh, translate uh, interviews with international fashion journalists at the, at the, the shows. I started going to shows. Uh, I started doing voices and jingles on the radio. I did um, the Radio Nova jingle to um, the aeroplane jelly commercial. <laughs> I don't know whether it's still playing, but if you are over in France and you hear it, then that's me. <laughs> Um, and then eventually, someone actually asked me would I like to do a, um, a chat show each day. Um, so I did. I did a, a two-hour chat show um, Monday to Friday called Tachycardie, which is French for tachycardia, heart, heart palpitations, and, and had um, studio guests, did, did interviews out in the field, went to the shows. Uh, so that, that's how I kind of immersed myself in, in French uh, fashion business, really. Came back to Australia and uh, for a holiday, bought a couple of interviews. I thought I'd bring something back to sell. I bought interviews back with um, Azadine Laya, Karl Lagerfeld and Jean-Paul Gaultier and sold them to a publication. And that began, that was the beginning of my 
um, freelance writing career, um, which has always been actually been has revolved around two things. I mean, which is quite typical with freelancers because you're not on staff and you're not being fed work, and that is pitching stories, selling them, and uh, also working as a correspondent. I, I've for my entire career I've worked as a correspondent. Australia selling stories about Australia to international press um, and from Paris selling stories to Australia and, and other countries um, about what was going on in France. So um, for any freelancers out there, I mean, having a currency swing is usually always very handy. Uh, not at the moment, though, if you're being paid in American dollars, it's going, it's going in the opposite direction. So um, my next, uh, well, my first actually um, full-time media gig was uh, working for a magazine called Studio, which some of you may no, because it's still around. I'm not sure if it's still around, but it was always independent. I mean, they went on to launch um, Black and White and Blue, uh, but I, they asked me to be their features editor, so I spent uh, three years there, actually, uh, working across Studio Collections, which is a women's magazine, Studio for Men, Studio Beauty, Studio Bambini, the children's one, and that, that was a really great introduction to sort of working with an editorial team. Uh, but the, the cover I've chosen, actually, is kind of quite a historic cover for Studio because... That cover actually never went to the newsstands, um, and I'll explain why. This is also an introduction to me to um, what goes on in, in media uh, and the kind of the decisions that people make, and I guess um, lack of ethics, or, or, or perhaps just pig-headedness and belief that you know it's your magazine and you do what you want. Uh, the editor chose, there was a story about sheer looks, trend number one, and the editor plucked a, um, a photo from that fashion shoot and uh, decided to put it on the cover. And look, as soon as I saw it on the light box, I actually said, um, are you sure you, you need to run that by someone because the girl's breast is visible? <laughs> and he said, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, you know, it's the 80s. Uh, and I said, well, look, I think probably it's probably a good idea to run it by someone because, you know, just because she modelled for the thing doesn't mean she wants to be there in all her glory on the, uh, on the magazine. So nothing was done. And... Look, uh, after a couple of days, the girl's father... It, it, it turned out that the girl was actually 15, um, and then her father was a QC, and he got wind of it and slapped an injunction on the magazine. <laughs> they went to court, and they had several options, uh, one of them which just was to sell it in a brown paper bag, uh, the other one was to can it all together, which probably would have been the end of the publication with all of the, um, uh, you know, with, with all the advertising that was tied in it. They came up with a... Um, uh, a third solution, and that was to put a transseasonal sticker across the front of every cover. So they did. I, I actually thought I had that issue, but um, that issue went to press with a, a diagonal tri transseasonal um, modesty panel over her sheer breast. So, so there you go. Look, I left a studio. I went um, back freelancing. I worked for Rag Trader, which is the um, uh, very well-respected uh, Australian fashion industry news magazine. I was the editor of that for a year. Um, I arrived at a time when it needed to be launched, relaunched in a, um, a smaller format. Uh, so we did that. Um, I did have some pictures, but I didn't have time to load them to show you what it went from and to uh, the, the current lowercase masthead um, in sans serif, the sans serif font, um, was part of that redesign. And uh, I actually had it completely redesigned by a, by a friend, a fantastic art director by the name of Bobby Gassi, and uh, uh, that sort of got... Um, the kibosh got put on that by the internal art department, so it, it, it was really... But it certainly was an improvement. Um, and that rag trader was a really great um, entree into the fashion trade, which is a bit of a, a paradigm shift for anyone working in consumer magazines. And in fact, um, 
a lot of people writing about fashion, I mean, you write about the trends, the models, the runway, but if you actually have to start looking at the business, it's a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, and it's obviously very interesting because you've got the business side, you've got, I mean, all of the, the business problems that, that uh, people working in fashion have to deal with, which isn't covered in consumer press. So um, after Rag Trader, I, I went into, uh, I, I changed my focus of what I, um, where I was selling stories, and that was to focus on newspapers, trade publications, uh, business publications, current affairs publications, because I sort of um, was more interested in the business side at that stage. I still worked for some consumer magazines, but um, but I, I was very interested in the business side. So um, uh, one of the publications that I wrote, I, I wound up at after a, uh, quite a few years freelancing was um, the Sydney Morning Herald, which I don't know whether any of you saw any of the stories I did there. Uh, I actually covered Australian Fashion Week for the Sydney Morning Herald for four years, but I was only on a retainer as their fashion reporter for two. Um, one year I did a cover story for the Good Living on Fashion Week, and the last year I covered it for the online thing. But um, for anyone who is interested in fashion writing or who currently writes, I mean, it's actually much harder to get a fashion story in the news pages of a newspaper, um, particularly in EGN, Early General News, where um, you know space is extremely tight, it's time sensitive. If there's a big story, you get bumped. Fashion is the first thing to get bumped. And while many newspapers have fashion in, in their pages uh, for what they call a change of pace, so you know it's, it's some good news and some pretty girls, um, you know, compared to all the bad news. Uh, to get a serious news story in there is not that easy. And uh, I actually really enjoyed the time that I was there and the particular retainer that I had. The, the news side of it, um, they increased, they doubled from one year to the next because. Once I started producing these news stories, they kind of couldn't get enough of them. And look, I've just chosen, I had a few page one bylines, which um, I, get, I mean, I'm kind of quite proud of because, again, it's no mean feat. Uh, you know, no one likes to see the fashion reporter's name on page one. As, as someone actually said to me after seeing it there, what does it say about the newspaper? Um, but, in, but, in, but in the particular case, I mean, some of the stories I had were certainly with that, were related to Fashion Week and they wanted to have a big Sydney story up there. But this one, uh, you notice it's about Michelle Leslie's um, release from prison. And of all the reporters that were on the, the Michelle Leslie story, um, only the fashion writer uh, got, got onto her um, for an interview. And um, that's the, I spoke to her, um, or I spoke to actually her minder. She was in the background feeding him information. And I, one of the questions I asked, what was the first thing that you did when you got out of, um, when you got out of, uh, of jail? And she said, I bought a pair of stilettos. So that, that went into the headline, get out of jail by stilettos, go directly to the highest bidder. So, um, so yeah, well, it was at, while I was at the Sydney Morning Herald that I moved into new media. Like many mainstream media outlets, particularly newspapers, I mean, integration, how they um, obviously integrated their offline and online activities was, um, was sort of very key. And, I mean, to a certain degree, in some many publications, it is a case of church and state. You have the uh, the print reporters, and then you have the online team. And I think in many newspapers, uh, there was <clears throat> a feeling of um, people were very kind of threatened by um, you know by, by the online team because, of course, they could get to stories much faster. And uh, I think they uh, newspapers learnt very quickly that uh, unless they knew they had a story to themselves. Um, then they should put it online straight away because otherwise the, the risk of um, you know getting beaten is um, you know is significant. So now I mean if they think they have a story themselves or they have to do the story they'll do it in print. But I mean a lot of stories are broken online and 
in 2006, so this is where this is where Mojo, which means a lot of things to a lot of people, but it actually also stands for Mobile Journalist. That's how I got into new media. I mean, I had actually been, as a, just as a consumer, I'd been online um, involved in web forums and uh, uh, online debating, which is uh, sort of, you know, not, not for the faint-hearted, in, in, depending on which forum you're in. That was actually a really great um, sort of grounding point, you know, because if, for anyone who uses web forums, you're um, just you know, providing topics for discussion, you know, you're launching a thread, sometimes they take off, sometimes they don't. And in fact, I mean, talking about web forums, one of the world's uh, biggest web forum, biggest fashion web forums is also now happens to be one of the world's best go-to resources for breaking fashion information, and that's um, a web forum called The Fashion Spot, or TFS, as many people call it. I mean, it is just, it's, it's almost impossible to navigate because it's just, they really do need to upgrade, uh, upgrade their sort of operating system, but it's just anything, I mean, and anyone in the fashion business will tell you, um, the minute a new model does something or, you know, a campaign is launched, someone, there's like an army of these volunteer fashion writers out in the world scouring for new information and uh, they're getting it up there. And look, there's a number of uh, websites, newspapers, bloggers, uh, who actually base a lot of their... Uh, uh, stories, you know, on the stuff that's broken on, on, on the fashion spot. So I, I actually really like it when I do a story that, uh, I mean, I usually check to see whether it's been done anywhere else before, and the fashion spot's one of the first places I check, but I actually really like it when, um, you know, I do a story and the news is news to the fashion spot. So, um, so, uh, so anyway, so in 2006, um, I was a fashion reporter for the Herald covering Australian Fashion Week, and they decided that they really wanted to ramp up their coverage of Fashion Week that year. So they asked me about a month out, would I do a blog? Would I do multimedia? So, I mean, they could have got someone on their team, on their online team to do it, but they decided to do it of both. And I said, sure, fantastic, great. I mean, I'd been obviously reading blogs like many people were in 2006. I mean, some people were already blogging, obviously, in 2006. Um, I sort of just kind of got the hang of it. Uh, I was actually blogging, this is 2006, so the, before the launch of the iPhone, so I won't be uh, beaten over the head for saying that I was using a BlackBerry at the time, and um, uh, I, was, I wasn't actually blogging straight into the, um, into the interface. I think they used either Expression Engine or, um, or Movable Type, but uh, I was blogging via BlackBerry from a cab from the front row, um, sending it to the editors, they were putting it up, and adding photos. So I was blogging, but kind of by remote, um, and obviously Blackberries at the time were just those big, basic blue Blackberries. You couldn't really do much more than, than email. But, um, but mind you, I did actually when I did the overseas shows that year, uh, and I went to Milan for the first time. Uh, no one told me that my predecessor had actually uh, had to phone her copy in each night because the um, such as the internet connection situation in most Italian hotels. I'm not sure how many of you have experienced that, but even in five-star hotels. Uh, I mean, people have had problems. I don't know why. I mean, everyone in, in Italy is on mobile phones. You see even little old ladies walking down the street uh, get a great internet connection. It's very hard. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I, I had to follow my, all my uh, news stories by BlackBerry as well. So um, did Australian Fashion Week. It was a kind of, um, was a great experiment. Uh, doubled my workload, but I mean, I really loved it. And uh, I mean, the feedback was, I think it was actually the first blog at Fashion Week. So that's five years ago. This goes to show how quickly times have changed. I mean, uh, how many blogs are there now? And as I was just saying before, I mean, in terms of um, 
the VIP international media, I mean, for the past three years, they're all bloggers, aren't they? I mean, I'm sure they'd love to have Susie Menkis or Kathy Horan come to Australian Fashion Week, but I mean, in terms of the people I think that they're actively chasing, it's, it's about bloggers. So, um, uh, people were sort of telling me that they were reading the blog. Um, uh, the Sydney Morning Hill didn't want to keep it going after that, so I kind of stopped. Uh, <clears throat> kicked it uh, off again a couple of months later when I went to the overseas shows um, and for the first time the Herald actually covered four cities, um, that is New York, London, Milan, Paris, where they only ever done uh, Milan and Paris before I went to them and said, listen, for the same budget I could stay at cheaper hotels and just buy a world-class, around-the-world ticket rather than a, um, uh, you know, a Europe return and uh, can I do it? And they said, sure. So. Uh, that was, I think, the first time the Sydney Morning Herald, I, I think it may have been the first time that an Australian newspaper had actually covered all four weeks. And look, you know, that's understandable because it does cost money and unless you actually are generating stories, uh, it's all very well to file stories, but as a number of people who've been to the shows who write for newspapers have found, sometimes those stories get bumped if there's no uh, good news edge. In my first um, season blogging the international shows, so in September 2006, uh, I had a kind of rather unique experience, which is kind of now become... <laughs> it's become uh, uh, I don't know if this is familiar to anyone, but I, I, um, I was at New York Fashion Week and uh, I was outside a, um, a particular show. Uh, you know, I didn't have a ticket and I was talking to the PR, a woman by the name of Kelly Cutrone. I'm sure, I'm sure many of you probably know the name. She's since become a sort of reality TV star, um, well known for her, um, her antics and her explosive personality. Uh, while I was talking to her outside this show, I mean, and she discovered that I was Australian, uh, Kelly just couldn't help sounding off about something that was really bugging her, and that was um, that Subi, the Australian jeans brand, uh, which was one of her clients, um, had obviously been drumming up the fact that they were doing a collaboration show with another one of her clients, an American brand by the name of Jeremy Scott. Now, they'd done a little capsule collection, and it was going to be seen that week, and she just was really bugging her that she was constantly being called by the Australian media uh, about the Subi show, and she said to me, well, you know, it's not a Subi show, it's, it's a Jeremy Scott show, and she was basically trying to play it down, and look, I kind of couldn't help it, uh, but report that as a gossip item in the City Morning, in, in I think it was Essential, um, the next issue, and ironically, the name of the collaboration thing was Subi, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy loves Subi, and I, the headline was Jeremy hates Subi, with a question mark, and uh, Kelly got wind of that, and was just so mortified, by seeing her own words in print that she um, uh, banned me from all of her shows uh, that week, uh, anywhere else, uh, anywhere else in the world, in the future, <laughs> and told me she'd make my life difficult for the rest of my journalistic career, quote unquote, said that she was going to sue me. And then uh, at the next show that she had, which I had no intention of going to, she plastered the venue with <laughs> this poster. <laughs> which I couldn't believe at the time that someone, you know, like wanted posters. If you see this woman, don't let her in. Um, and so, you know, I did what any blogger would do, and that is I blogged the whole story, and that became a very successful story on smh.com.au. I think it was the, you know, got a huge response, lots of comments. Um, it wound up on Gorka, the, the New York media blog, for two days in a row because, of course, they love... Um, you know, anyone in the media behaving badly, uh, whether that was Kelly or me, I don't know, but uh, I mean, I just reported it as I heard it and as I saw it. I mean, you know, I didn't make that up. You, you can't make up something like that. So um, anyway, uh, I came back from the end of that. Um, there were a few changes at the Herald. There was, there'd only ever been a fashion reporter. 
Uh, they introduced a fashion editor because they were launching Essential, which has just been canned, I note. It was such a success. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed the online side, uh, and I sort of decided to sort of resign from my reporting role with the paper and went to um, smh.com.au. Uh, so I, I was kind of like moonlighting for smh.com.au before, but I actually um, then started reporting just for them, and I covered the next season for smh.com.au. Um, I covered... Um, uh, sorry, I think I'm, I'm actually getting ahead of myself because I think, and I, look, I did some video as well, and I just wanted to show you just um, as a snippet of a video I did, which has long since disappeared. Well, it doesn't matter what else is going on in the world at the moment. If you're in Sydney, the only news that anyone is interested in knowing is about the Nicole Kidman Keith Urban wedding. But although the couple has issued a statement saying they've come home to tie the knot, trying to find out any hard details about where, when, why, or what frock has been something of a mission impossible. I decided to do a bit of detective work. So that was just, I mean, just some, um, that was just some video. So I did video, covered Australian Fashion Week the next. Um, the person who actually got me blogging at smh.com.au, a guy by the name of David Higgins, he was the online editor of smh.com.au, um, to actually I owe uh, a great debt of gratitude, um, uh, you know, for sort of moving into digital media. He then went to news.com.au as their online um, editor. Uh, well, obviously, they're online as the, as the editor of uh, news.com.au. And uh, he called me across there and uh, asked what I like to be news.com.au's fashion reporter. So I went there and uh, I launched a new blog by the name of Fully Chic. I'm not sure if anyone saw that. Um, that was, even though it still wasn't my own blog per se, when it was their design, again, I wanted to do some screen caps but didn't have time. It wasn't particularly attractive. I mean, the website... The news.com.au website's not particularly attractive and the blog just sat in that. But it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity because um, initially I was blogging three times a week. Um, I went to the, the next show season. Uh, and, I mean, these are very big audiences. It was an interesting way to start blogging because normally you start with a blog and you have a very small audience and you build that audience. But this was blogging at the deep end in a mainstream news environment uh, where I've got to say there is actually usually quite a lot of <clears throat> antipathy towards... Um, fashion, and, and the readers, you know, never sort of stopped letting you know how, how disgusting they thought about fashion was. At Fully Chic, Fully Chic was, um, I said, a great opportunity because it was blogging more regularly. Uh, it was kind of non-stop. It only lasted for a year. The funding was withdrawn after a year, but, um, uh, and I went to the shows and uh, um, got some great discussions. I mean, there were some, um, a couple of discussions which really went off. I mean, that's an advantage of having a mainstream audience. I mean, you can have a small blog and it can be picked up by mainstream sites, and that's happened to me with my own blog and, and many other bloggers. But I mean, to actually launch a discussion topic into a, you know, a mainstream um, sort of backdrop, I mean, you've got an instant audience there, and especially if it's a hot-button topic. And a couple of the ones which spring to mind were uh, Leona Edliston, Australian designer, decided to quietly double her size range from, uh, well, she, well, she basically went up to a, nine, a 24, uh, which is extraordinary and had never been done before. And uh, she only did it online because their research indicated that, um, that uh, larger women feel more comfortable uh, shopping online. They feel uncomfortable in, in, in bricks and mortar boutiques because they think people are um, making fun of them. And uh, I mean, there's various other reasons which I would actually look at in other blog posts. But I mean, that just went off. There was just like a, a, a huge debate between the, the 
you know, the, the, the fat haters and the fat acceptance lobby and the people who think that making larger, you know, size clothing is encouraging obesity. And I, I mean, that, that, that debate continues on. I mean, someone in the last few days has suggested that having plus-size models is uh, encouraging obesity. So um, that went off. Um, one which really springs to mind was um, in the lead-up to Australian Fashion Week. I think it was 2008. It must have been because Fully Chic only lasted a year. But... Um, I did a story, a blog post about the models that were coming out to Fashion Week, and uh, and I sort of did a, a tally of all the girls who were coming. Some of them were coming from IMG, which is the the, the organisation that owns Australian Fashion Week, and they were bringing out some of their girls into, from inter, you know international markets to sort of give them a, a shot. And the girl who was being promoted as the face of Australian Fashion Week was a 14-year-old by the name of Monica Yagachak, uh, otherwise known as Jack, um, who's since become a actually quite high-profile model, but at that stage she was, you know, she was too young to even work in Paris because there were very um, stringent age restrictions in Paris. Um, and she was being promoted as the face of the event, which in itself I didn't think anything of until I actually saw a photo um, that she'd done, and it was, she was in a swimsuit, uh, a wet swimsuit, lying back in a spa bath with a full face of makeup, and, and she really just looked like I mean, she looked like she was in a brothel, and uh, I, did a, I did a post with the photo, the simple headline, uh, and at the time I found out, sorry, she was, she was 13 when that photo was taken, and the headline was, um, this Polish model was 13 when this photo was taken, do you have a problem with it? And um, they most certainly did, and it just went off overnight. I mean, no one, people who weren't watching news.com probably didn't realise where that debate started, but that's where it did start, and the next day... Uh, Vogue cancelled a cover shoot with her. Uh, the Telegraph picked it up, trying to own the story by saying, is she too young to come? I mean, I personally didn't think she was too young to come. I just wanted to know why anyone had greenlit a, a photo like that. Um, by the Friday, uh, under-16 models had been banned from Australian Fashion Week, which wasn't quite the intention that I had, but um, sometimes you have to be careful what you say, <laughs> what, what you put out there. Um, I mean, some people think that that's a good thing. London has an age restriction. Uh, um, they, they can't work at David Jones if they're under 18, so um, some of them are actually going straight to the overseas shows um, underage. So anyway, so there you go. So look, while still at Fully Chic, I did do... Um, I was blogging finally into the interface, um, whereas at smh.com.au I wasn't. I was, um, as I said, sending them the copy, and they were, they were producing everything at that end. But um, at news.com.au, I was blogging. I was also moderating my own comments and learned something very interesting about um, mainstream media outlets and moderation, and that is that, um, uh, I mean, I was challenged on a number of occasions over the comments that I let go through, particularly about myself, <laughs> because the editors thought that if people were going to slag off the person who wrote the story, then it's not much point them coming there and it just lowers the tone of the conversation. So um, I think it's safe to say that in many mainstream outlets, even though comments obviously are enabled on a, on a lot of stories, uh, they're probably quite heavily moderated, um, and uh, it's not such a great thing because those, if those reporters, I mean, look, as I say to many people, if you're an idiot uh, and you go online, you'll be ripped to shreds, and if you're not an idiot, you'll be ripped to shreds anyway. But uh, you will, you will, um, you know, find a following, and uh, uh, I mean, you know, even if people have a, a vested interest, personal beef, um, I, my personal theory is, unless they're, you know going to get me into trouble in terms of defamation or unless there's something really, um, I mean, really nasty about uh, what they've said. I mean, I, I tend to think I just let it fly because they've said it, they have a right to say it, and then I find that the other people commenting, um, uh, you know, usually take them to task on it. So, so there you go. So um, some of the stuff I did here is something I did um, 
from the overseas shows. Again, while I was blogging into the interface, I was taking some photos. I had a little Nikon camera, which was, um, you know, really low-res, uh, basic photos. News.com was, was actually using some of those photos in its photo galleries if it couldn't get photos quickly enough. I did some sound as well. I remember I recorded Anna Winter's address at uh, Isabella Flo, uh, Blow's funeral. Um, that went up. And, um, and I did some video. And here's a video I took backstage after the Louis Vuitton show in um, 2007. Well, Richard Prince has done a great series of paintings that were all inspired by this nurse uh, romance novel. And so we took the idea from that and we created those nurses and the bags they were carrying. Thank you very much. You are fine. Mark, how are you? How are you? Wait, I have to do this in order, so. that you could hear any of that, could you? Oh, you could. So, <laughs> this was um, 2007, and uh, I'm not sure if anyone remembers the story about Mark Jacobs, who is always, always late for shows, and he's a designer who I, I have a great deal of empathy with because I have, a, I have a, an issue myself <laughs> with punctuality. I mean, the shows are always worth the wait, but um, he really, in, in 2007, he really uh, copped a lot of flack. I mean, there were front page stories when Women's Were Daily. Uh, People were saying that they weren't going to boycott his shows uh, because there was one show in New York which was um, three hours late. And look, that, that, that is uh, unacceptable. And uh, I mean, he at one point was talking about boycotting New York Fashion Week and going to Paris. So he said at the end of that, I like pretty much like everything. I just don't like people who complain about late shows. Um, I'll get to why that's significant a little bit at, at the end um, because it was significant for the launch of the career of probably the world's um, best known fashion blogger. Uh, who we all know and love, Brian Boy. Um, Frock Rider. The funding for uh, Fully Chic came to an end at the end of uh, July 2008, and, oh, sorry, June 2008, and I had two choices, continue blogging for nothing, uh, or launch my own blog, which I'd, I'd been meaning to do for a long time, and I actually kicked myself that when I first started blogging that I didn't um, do a blog as well. I mean, again, I, I don't know, I can't tell you why. I, mean, I was busy. Uh, I had that mentality that, uh, um, well, of course, as I said, I, I would blog for myself. Um, but it became kind of priority at that stage. So I thought I'd go out. Um, the name Frockwriter, that's my blog now. It's been going for almost three years. Um, the name actually came from a slag off by another Australian fashion writer by the name of Melissa Hoyer, who's currently over overseas <laughs> covering the royal wedding. Um, she, I, I wrote something about Colette Dinigan being bumped from... Well, she, she took off uh, a fashion week in Paris and a lot of people were speculating that it was because she'd been bumped. Now, I mean, I didn't say she had been bumped, I just reported the speculation, which was, you know, a number of people in fashion were saying, which is mean-spirited of them, perhaps. But um, anyway, Melissa Hoyer referred to me as some frock writer. So I used that... I actually kept that as a, a sort of... Well, a, 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 a name... A, a handle, you know, in, in, in web forums and on people's blogs. And I, when it came to naming my own blog, I thought, well, actually, why not Frock Rider? I, I don't really like it because 
I mean, it, it is what it is. It sort of demeans, um, you know, it just basically pisses off someone who writes about fashion as just nothing but, you know, a frock rider. Um, but, but, I mean, you know, that is the nature of the beast when you write about fashion. Um, and certainly with myself, because I kind of find myself, have always found myself, I mean, to use, well, not a cliche, but a, between a frock and a hard place. I mean, I write about fashion, but I write about it in a, um, in a hard news environment. I, I mean, I left out television in that, but I also spent three years working as a producer a researcher, producer, and occasional reporter for Today Tonight, which was actually a really fantastic experience, um, I must say, because that really honed my uh, news gathering and competitive skills. I mean, when you're, when you're up against another program, you know, like A Current Affair, and everyone's trying to get to the talent, sometimes they're obviously throwing checkbooks at them. I mean, uh, you know, you can lose your job if you don't get the talent, get the exclusive, and uh, it really it was a great experience. So I was doing a... Um, a gossip column for the Sun Herald for a year as a maternity cover for Annette Sharp when she went on um, maternity leave in 2003. That was also um, another great experience and all these things have kind of informed my blogging, I think, because uh, while I've always had to deal with legal issues, you know, you can't put something in, in print, um, you can't just put anything in print, you have to obviously be able to stand it up. Uh, and even when you can stand it up, there are certain circumstances under which you can be sued. So, you know, stories get vetted by teams of lawyers uh, and, um, and, and, you know, particularly so when you're doing a gossip column and you're dealing with people's private lives. Uh, so that was, you know, in terms of what I could and couldn't do, um, you know, hence I knew that Kelly Catrone had no leg to stand on with her claim that she was going to sue me for, uh, for, saying, for reporting something that she said. Um, so, sorry, to Frockwriter, launched on July 4, 2008, Independence Day, which I thought was a good day. Um, I didn't really know, I mean, I have lots of friends who are bloggers, um, and, uh, you know, obviously they gave advice. Uh, I, I mean, having blogged for two years, obviously I knew about blogging, but I mean, I wasn't, it was actually sort of like kind of going into the sort of the, the wilderness, really, because, I mean, as any blogger could tell you, I mean, what do you blog about, you know? Um, you blog about something that, I don't know, you've seen somewhere. Uh, I mean, ideally you blog about something that hasn't been blogged about before, but that involves uh, chasing the story down, getting the exclusive... Um, you know, finding some information that no one else knows, which is not that hard. I mean, you do have to sort of, you know, get off your backside and, and get it. And, and then, as I said, um, work out whether you can, you can say it. So, so yeah, so Frockwater launched in July 2008, and um, I just sort of, I just went as I, I went, really. I mean, I, obviously not earning a living from it. I mean, it's, it's a hobby, but it, I put a lot more effort into it, as indeed a lot of other bloggers do. I mean, um, you, when you start blogging for yourself, I mean, you don't do it for money. I, I actually equate blogging to art. Um, it's like you do it because you love it or because you, you have a compulsion to do it uh, and maybe perhaps you're, you're good at it, you have some talent. Um, it's not because someone's paying you to do it. And in fact, you know, the fact that you have complete self-expression is, is, is another advantage. The fact that there's no deadlines is also something also I've always found personally appealing about blogging. I, I struggle with deadlines, but I, I just have no problem punching out a whole lot of blog posts because there's no pressure. Um, so, um, yeah, so Frockwriter, I mean, I didn't really have the budget to go back to the shows, which I would like to do at some stage. Um, but I certainly covered Australian Fashion Week, which I've done every year. And <clears throat> July 2008, I mean, it was too late for that year's Australian Fashion Week, but July, uh, Fashion Week 2009 uh, was the first Fashion Week I covered completely for the blog. I mean, I also 
One of my uh, freelance clients is Women's Wear Daily in America. Uh, I mean, I can, they're my main client, in fact, and I continue to, to, to do work for them. Uh, I would have covered something on Australian Fashion Week for them, but it was the first time I'd actually blogged the, uh, the event um, with my own independent site. And look, I had the old BlackBerry. The iPhone actually had been launched by that stage, but I just upgraded my BlackBerry and got a smartphone version. And we all, uh, everyone who was at Australian Fashion Week in 2009 probably does remember what a watershed event it was, because just to take you back a couple of years, um, I mean, Twitter may have been around since 2006, um, and I, I, mean, I, I was signed up to it in 2007 by News Limited, but it really was, hadn't hit the mainstream. And there were a couple of events in, the early, in early 2009. One was the Hudson River plane crash, uh, which made TwitPic overnight, if you may recall. I mean, that was... Uh, Ashton Kutcher had this race to get a million followers. I mean, he's now got, I think, five or six million followers. I mean, it's, it, Twitter was really in its infancy in terms of the fashion media, and in the early months of 2009, everyone piled onto it. Um, that's not to say that people weren't kind of blogging from fashion weeks around the world. I mean, they were. There's a, a, a fantastic American um, blogging model by the name of Anina. Uh, she goes by the name of Anina, but her name is Anina Tripti. Um, and she's been quite a pioneer with uh, working with Nokia. Uh, that was certainly, I, mean, I think the first smartphone was back in the early 90s, but you know, Nokia had quite a few in the, in, uh, it, later on. And uh, they were using a, <clears throat> in the early sort of 2000s, they were using a, a program called um, uh, Nokia Life Blog. Twitter wasn't around, so, but I mean, they were certainly blogging photos, live photos onto their blogs. But it wasn't really um, on any kind of large scale. Twitter is what made the difference there because it basically gave everyone with a smartphone and a Twitter account uh, and a blog, perhaps. Um, but I'll tell you about the mistake I made with my blog: the ability to to file in real time. I mean, you could file, um, you could take photos on the runway, uh, you could uh, you could you know record something, uh, you know something you heard, a detail on the runway way before anyone in mainstream media was going to get to it with. Um, you know, with their stories the next day. So, um, and that particular, um, that, so using my BlackBerry, <laughs> I started, now, this is a very blurry photo. Um, this became quite a controversial issue at that particular fashion week. Uh, there were much clearer photos, but um, so many people were using so many sm different model smartphones to bombard Twitter uh, that people with these blurry photos, they were so excited about it that they, um, uh, people started, there was a backlash began on Twitter about the fact that these photos were just crap. Um, I mean, you know, we now have, I mean, this year with the Queensland floods, I mean, uh, we had Grant Denier on Channel 7, I'm not sure if you saw, who was filing via Skype um, from, uh, what was the place that was hardest hit? Uh, Tully. Uh, because, you know, a link van couldn't get there in time. He was filing via Skype. I mean, the pictures were crap. But better than no pictures at all. So I think in two years we've come a long way in terms of, you know, speed versus quality. And um, anyway, there was quite a lot of controversy about these photos. Um, a number of us bloggers sort of banded together. We, we joked, we called it blurralism. And <laughs> we said, vowed that we were going to have a, um, a, uh, a, an exhibition actually one day. Um, that, I mean, it took quite a few. And look, these are some of my favorite blurry, but I mean, I actually like the composition. Um, that's another one. Um, just enough detail in, in the garment um, to, to, you can tell what it is. It's a jumpsuit with a thing. Um, some of the photos were ridiculous, I agree. <laughs> That's Dion Lee's show. Um, I mean, that is ridiculous. I, I wholly concur. But one of the shots I took from that very same show has since become 
That's from Dion Lee's uh, first show at Australian Fashion Week. Um, and it was just taken, as I said, by fluke when that particular model was walking past. And I just, I just always loved the colours and, comp- and, and the composition. And that's become Frock Rider's uh, logo. It's, it's, it's the image I use on Facebook um, and on Frock Rider's Twitter account, even though I actually I, I tweet under my own name. I don't, I mean, I should do it under both, but um, I, I could do it both on TweetDeck. But anyway, so um, yeah, so it was, it was a very eventful, I think only South by Southwest in the US had. Um, uh, which was either before that or shortly after it, was, was kind of a, considered a bit of a, a watershed event in terms of um, social media coverage of, of, a, of a major fashion event. The climate uh, quickly changed um, in six months. New York Fashion Week, or the next international show season, I mean, everyone was using Twitter. Uh, I mean, you couldn't move for people tweeting. And it's, it's since rolled since there. But look, you know, I found also um, you could take, with the right light, you could take quite a clear shot um, I mean, it's not a cl- as clear as a DSLR camera, but it's still quite... And that shot also, I particularly... Um, I love... It's not as sharp, but it's just... Um, a shot I took backstage at Cake for Sylvester that season, and there was a model, and I just... You know, just turn the camera on, and they just do their model pose. And I just... Um, I really liked it. So, I, look, I've since upgraded my phone again, and I have a 3.2 megapixel camera, and the, the images are sharper, uh, and I also use a DSLR camera. So... Um, but that's the thing about, uh, you know, blogging for yourself. I mean... I, I personally think I've become an all, a better all-round reporter. Uh, you know, bloggers are one-man or one-woman bands. I mean, they do everything. Um, you know, unless you get to the point where you can monetize it, and I mean, that really is the key to the future, I think, of blogging, um, just how people monetize it, because I think there's going to be a lot of blogs and bloggers that fall by the wayside. Um, but, you know, you, you do everything. I mean, you do your own... Well, I mean, if you're lucky, you could have a friend who did your graphic design for you, or if you had a small budget. Um, I mean, some people obviously have full-time jobs and they're blogging at night and funneling. So, I mean, that's a great way to start. Um, but, um, yeah, you do everything. And I, I personally have think I've become an all, a better all-round reporter. I mean, I now really enjoy taking photographs. I mean, I have a great camera and I put it on automatic and I just, you know, I take enough photos, there will be one good shot in there. <laughs> I don't profess to be a photographer. But by the same token, I mean, I actually kind of feel sorry for professional photographers because there are lots of bloggers being hired for... Uh, for gigs that um, you know would normally go to professional photographers, I mean you know, but there's also plenty of blogging photographers uh, that are completely self-taught who've become fantastic photographers. I mean Tommy Ton from Jack and Jill is a very good example, self-taught. Uh, Scott Schumann from the Sartorialist, self-taught. I mean you can teach yourself the technique. Um, they have the advantage of you know, obviously they have the, the social media platform where they can get their names out there and. Um, the normal photographers, sort of, a lot of them haven't actually got onto, onto that. So, so um, that's kind of how I got into my own blog. I just wanted to cover a couple of um, sort of broader issues that have sort of uh, you, you discover as you're sort of navigating through. Um, I don't know if anyone knows what this stands for. <laughs> anyone want to take a guess? It's, um, it's something, it's a debate that's been going on for probably about five years, really, and some people think it's died, but if you listen to um, the kvetching and the, and the moaning that goes on in the mainstream media about those bloggers who sort of take front row seats at shows and who are being given, you know, uh, courted by PRs and fashion brands, um, it's not over at all. Um, mainstream media, uh, the people certainly who haven't, uh, you know, stepped up to the plate in terms of upskilling with technology, um, you know, social media, um, 
I mean, I think some of them feel very threatened, uh, certainly in terms of the pecking order at Fashion Weeks where you have the front row. Uh, I mean, they've spent years uh, getting there. I mean, some of them, in, in the case of some of them, you know, 20 years getting there. And, you know, they take it very seriously. So, I mean, there was a watershed moment in um, 2009, that, that, that same year, uh, at the Dolce Gabbana show in, in, in Milan where Dolce Gabbana put five bloggers front row alongside Anna Winter, and that was Brian Boy, Tommy Ton, Garon Storey, and, and Scott Schumann from the Sartorialist. And it was a publicity stunt to say for, to Dolce Gabbana, you know, look, look how hip we are. Um, but it, was a really, it sent a really clear message that, you know, um, these bloggers are sort of not just, you know, pyjama bloggers, they're people, they're actually figures in the industry. And, um, you know, there was a huge amount of publicity over that, and um, there's been a few other sort of incidents. But, you know, Tavi, the 14-year-old uh, who's been blogging out of her bedroom, I mean, she caused a lot of fuss at the couture shows because she was wearing a, a giant bow hat, and uh, I think Grazia UK was sitting behind her, and uh, they complained that they couldn't see much through the, her stupid bow. Um, and, and then people complained about, you know, she shouldn't be blogging, she should be at school. I mean, you know, lots of kids have hobbies uh, just because you become, a, you know, an international celebrity. And that's the thing with bloggers. I mean, I mean, I don't include myself in that by any stretch of the imagination, but the people who have made names for themselves, uh, and there's a lot, but, I mean, it's not every blogger. I mean, you know, they are celebrities now, so the front rows of fashion shows just aren't filled with with media and buyers, there's celebrities there too. Anyone who is going to generate coverage for brands, um, you know, you tend to see them in the front row. Um, but I have to say that um, from the point of view of the bloggers, there's also, I I've personally found some um, uh, angst as well because some, I, I was actually told <laughs> that a lot of um, grassroots bloggers don't think that anyone who, in the mainstream who blogs, um, is a bona fide blogger. So, I mean, I try not to call... I mean, I, I call myself a journalist and blogger. I, I really don't like it when people just call me a blogger because um, I feel I've earned my stripes as a journalist and, you know, they're, they're, they're actually... I'm sure there are some journalists who blog and some bloggers who are journalists, but they're, they're, there is a difference. But by the same token, I mean, I can't say I'm a grassroots blogger because, I mean, I had my byline out there in, in mainstream media before I published myself. So, but I mean, you know, everyone has a right to... Be, the democracy of, of, you know, the net means that anyone can have a voice with um, blogging, and, you know, that includes journalists. So um, for the few who are uh, perhaps foolish enough to step out there, I mean, if they want to compete um, for the... I think, I think the feeling is with some is that they have an unfair advantage and that they already have an established name, uh, and therefore they have, you know, that's like a handicap, um, or it's a handicap not to have that. Um, it's certainly true, I think, that some, no names mentioned, but some mainstream journalists who have launched blogs and have, you know, they've become quite large enterprises, uh, they have, may have had funding um, from their families, but, you know, I mean, that's life. People launch businesses all the time with help from mum and dad or, uh, you know, private investors. I mean, if, if, they, if they had that, uh, you know, recourse to, the, to that investment, then so be it. But, um, you know, you could also say that there's um, plenty of mainstream journalists, well, not plenty, but there some mainstream journalists who've gone into blogging who actually haven't been very successful at it. So just because you have a mainstream media brand doesn't mean that you can axiomatically translate that into new media. I, I mean, I certainly don't think, and I've seen it. Um, you have to provide something. You have to provide for anyone to be interested in what you're doing. I mean, it's not about you. Uh, well, I mean, there are bloggers, obviously, you know, for whom it is actually about them because they publish photos of themselves. But in terms of um, the stories that you, you tell, it's, it, it's about the strength of the story, really. And... Uh, I mean, you know, I think there's plenty of um, 
of bloggers that have had no mainstream media background at all, I mean, and who've become huge successes. Um, something else I wanted to touch on, bloggers versus bloggers, which is something I'm not sure if any, um, how many of you know about, but um, there are politics at play. Um, bloggers, you know, some in any area, uh, certainly I found this in web forums, there are always people who want to own a conversation or own a, own a medium and uh, some people just don't like competition. People deal with competition in every business in, in, in different ways. Uh, with the internet, obviously, you have the benefit of the anonymity, you know, the cloak of anonymity. Um, so, you know, there have been instances of, oh, plenty of instances of bloggers sort of attacking other bloggers with anonymous comments. Uh, I mean, you can upgrade your comment system so that you can, um, you can try and find out a bit more about that. But um, uh, if, you ha if they have technical assistance, there's ways and means of getting around that by using proxy servers and things. Um, it's hard to actually prove, but there, there, there have been instances of people being Google spoofed um, and even hacking. So, uh, yeah, I mean, let's just all um, put it out there and work together. And, um, I mean, lots of bloggers work collaboratively, you know, fantastically. Um, so, I don't know, that's, that's kind of like an unfortunate sort of aspect of blogging. But as I said, that's, you know, competition is tough in any business. Why should it be like that in the blogosphere? Um, Another thing, reporters versus cheerleaders. I mean, this is, this is, this is something that's levelled against fashion reporters in the mainstream media, um, and that is that, you know, there aren't... I mean, and, and, and this is a point that a lot of bloggers make with the ethics issue. Just because you're a journalist or you call yourself a journalist and you're supposed to adhere or you're supposed to adhere to the ethics of, you know, <clears throat> mainstream media doesn't necessarily mean that you do, especially not if you work in fashion, because... Um, Fashion writers on newspapers um, usually have to sign ethics contracts. I mean, this all came in actually after the um, after the Salt Lake City Olympics. Actually, I remember the contracts coming through from Women's Wear Daily, and uh, um, you know the Duchessing scandal that occurred with um, the Salt Lake City Olympics. Uh, so, I mean, you, you usually have to sign an ethics contract saying that you will not accept free goods. Sometimes it's over the value of ten dollars. Uh, obviously, people send some things to you unsolicited. You know, you're supposed to then, you know send it back or give it to charity, uh, obviously so that, you know, your, in, your opinion isn't influenced um, by commercial interests. And, you know, that might not be a problem for the fashion journalist, but certainly a problem for the publication, because in every other respect, I mean, they're considered to be, you know, to have a lot of integrity. So, I mean, bloggers point out that lots of fashion journalists do that. I mean, they're taking, you know, luxury brands send out, um, you know, the latest, the, the latest season it bag. I mean, that's the only way some of them get publicity, by sending it to fashion journalists who shouldn't accept them. I mean, that's not to say that Susie Menkes at the International Herald Tribune accepts gifts. She says she doesn't, uh, nor does Kathy Horan at the New York Times. And anyone working for the Wall Street Journal can't even accept a free lunch. So um, there are publications where it's very strictly adhered to. But, I mean, if you're just uh, going to be doing what, uh, what, what do they call it in fashion magazines? Editing, editing by omission, or criticism, criticism by omission. That is, someone... Uh, has a fashion show and you don't like it, you just don't write about it, uh, and therefore you're criticising it. Uh, it's not really... It's much harder to um, sort of to stand up there and sort of um, put your name to some criticism because, of course, you can generate enemies and uh, people can ban you from shows, which has happened to a number of uh, mainstream journalists. So um, I think that... Um, yeah, I think the reporter versus cheerleader thing is... is it's quite a big sort of subject going forward with blogging because, I mean, certainly in America there's been uh, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has 
slap down sort of regulations where, uh, I mean, bloggers by law have to disclose whether or not there are commercial interests. That hasn't happened in Australia yet, and I think, um, I think a lot of people would probably like to see um, some kind of movement there because, uh, you know, I mean, the, the PR industry is, re is right on to blogging. Um, I mean, they've kind of moved beyond the, these aren't real journalists and we want to deal with the mainstream media brands. Um, and they're just, you know, pyjama bloggers and we won't invite them to the shows to actually these guys are generating quite a lot of coverage and people are picking up their stories and it's a he they've got a hell of a lot more space than, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald's fashion pages or the, you know, the... So, I mean, bloggers obviously offer unlimited, unlimited space. Uh, and, you know, I mean, bloggers are now obviously being flown places, um, showered with gifts. I mean, my own personal policy with... Um, and I don't accept any gifts, and I never used to accept trips, but I, I do now on behalf of my blog exclusively, not for anyone that I write for, uh, only if it's um, provided by a fashion show organiser and or usually it's done in con connection to a um, tourism authority because, uh, I mean, if accepting that is the only means via which you can cover the event and it benefits the whole industry, um, I think it's better than standing on a principle and saying, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to go. Um, so, but I do disclose that on post. Just another point... We're all storytellers, um, you know, bloggers, journalists, blogging journalists. Um, we're all telling a story about um, fashion, or, you know, in, in the case of fashion journalism, obviously it's about fashion. Um, and I think that's the difference between, um, you know, journalists and bloggers. I mean, the only difference really is that, you know, one may have, you know, training, on-the-job training. I mean, I myself am a self-taught journalist. I mean, I did an arts degree. I um, I never did a cadetship, I never did a communications degree, and I, I sort of fell into it, uh, started selling stories, and I quickly learned uh, the difference between a good, a good and bad story, and obviously I had feedback from the people that I sold to. And, you know, I mean, that's the proof of the pudding, really. If you can actually sell a story um, and someone's going to... without having to rewrite it, because, of course, if they're going to have to rewrite it from beginning to end, um, they probably won't be, you know, buying another story from you. Um, in terms of, I mean, I think bloggers should actually look at mainstream media as not so much enemies, but some, you know, people that they can learn things from. Because if you're, if you want to work in the media, and uh, I mean, I know a lot of people who have blogs who want to work in, in mainstream media, are, you know, are trying to get internships and trying to, you know, get jobs and sell stories. And you know, it, do, it does take time. But if you're only going to work for yourself, where you are the publisher, you are the editor, you are the sub-editor, I mean, you're not going to learn anything. Uh, you know, you, you are your own sort of benchmark. Um, I mean, okay, I guess your readers might tell you if it's crap, but, I mean, let's be honest, there are fashion blogs out there where, I mean, the English language tools aren't, aren't great. I mean, I'm not talking about people who aren't blogging in their sort of native language, but, I mean, the, the language tools aren't great. Um, I mean, in terms of reporting, um, you know, there's, there's, there's better ways they could do it. I mean, there's fantastic things that bloggers do that, um, that aren't being done by mainstream media, and, and as I said, uh, all power to them. But I think that there's a lot probably that, um, you know, I mean, certainly some bloggers could learn from mainstream media. Um, and also the difference between the, the journalists and bloggers is that the journalists have the craft of um, journalism, whereas the bloggers, I mean, they can be intuitive and find stories, but, you know, I mean, it's either... It's either fact or fiction, and the journalists are going to find out um, the difference. Um, that's not to say that a blogger can't do that. And plenty of stories have been broken by bloggers, and you know, mainstream media outlets have been sort of humiliated by how slack their reporters were. I'm not talking about fashion now. I'm talking about politics. I mean, you know, some of the greatest stories of the last 10 years have been broken on blogs um, by you know political enthusiasts, political writers, people who don't have jobs. You know, because I mean, 
getting a job at a newspaper, uh, you know, there's usually quite a lot of money involved. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to kind of finish with um, talking about one particular blogger. I mentioned the Mark Jacobs thing uh, and um, before that he, that he had a lot of trouble from uh, being late with his shows. And uh, one blogger, um, so this is a very good example of how you can not have any kind of media background, be blogging from your bedroom in the Philippines, and uh, you can become the most famous fashion blogger in the world. Uh, and how did Brian Boy do that? Uh, I mean, I, I do think he's actually probably the most famous. I mean, who else is there? There's Tavi, uh, there's Scott Schumann, the sartorialist. I mean, there's lots of high-profile bloggers that are now earning a living, uh, probably a comfortable living, out of blogging. I'm not sure Brian Boy's earning 100000 as people keep reporting, but he's certainly earning a living, and so are a number of others. But um, how did he do that? I mean, he'd been blogging for about four years. Um, in that, when Mark Jacobs had that, um, had that, uh, and, and look, you know, Brian Boy had a cult following. I mean, he he was obsessed with luxury. I think he he was a, a software engineer and uh, um, started a blog really to sort of document his uh, travels in Russia and it was just for his family and friends. And just took off. He had an interest in luxury. Um, he's got at that one point a couple of years ago, he had 200 luxury bags, and he used to, he, he initially did this thing called the Brian Boy signature pose, where he'd stand with a luxury bag. And, um, and then he'd encourage readers to send in photos of themselves doing the same thing. And he, I mean, he just was, had this knack for encouraging reader to participation. And uh, people were sending him in photos with you know, them, themselves holding up bags. Um, again, you can't prove it, but Fendi, one season, had a campaign which had a, had a model holding up a bag. So his influence was already out there. Um, he also got people to hold up signs saying, I heart Brian Boy and published all of those photos. Um, but he kind of, I I, I'm not sure he did it because he just loves Mark Jacobs, but he, um, he did this little video uh, and put it on YouTube and Mark Jacobs got wind of it. Um, and here it goes. I'm Brian of brianboy.com and this is my story of one of my favorite designers ever, Mr. Mark Jacobs. Work it harder, make it better, do it faster, makes us stronger, all than ever. Power after power, work is never over. Work it harder, make it better, do it faster, makes us stronger, all than ever. After power, work is never over. Anyway, it went on to basically talk, tell the story about Mark Jacobs and how he was fantastic and how he'd revolutionized the brand of Louis Vuitton. I mean, okay, sure, sucking up, but I mean, he, you know, it's, it's a true story. I mean, he did revolutionize Louis Vuitton and how everyone should cut Mark Jacobs some slack over being late for shows. Uh, Mark Jacobs saw it, contacted him, said, thank you so much. Of course, Brian Boy then took that quote and put it on his website. Um, next thing, Mark Jacobs, or Mark Jacobs is photographed backstage holding up an I Heart Brian Boy um, poster, which of course he blogs. And then, um, I mean, the real watershed was that he named a bag in his next collection after, he called it the BB bag, which of course, he then sent the, the prototype to Brian Boy, who then blogged it all. And that really set him off onto this, you know, global uh, fashion headlines. I mean, he was in every newspaper. So, I mean, that's a perfectly good example of someone who, as I said, no media background at all. Um, I mean, he's very, Brian Boy has got, gotten to where he is. He's, he's got a love of fashion. He knows a lot about it. In fact, I would say he knows more about fashion than um, some people who are writing, you know, being paid to write about it. Uh, and he's also very theatrical. I mean, he did this video, which is not a lot of people would actually do. 
Um, so, you know, Tavi, the little 14-year-old girl, also has done videos. I mean, she does amateur theatre. She's always interested in performance. I think there's various sorts of bloggers. I think there is a feeling amongst some bloggers that just because I blog, I'm going to be famous. Um, you have to look at what it is that you bring to the table. Um, uh, I mean, you know, Brian Boy, Ruby Neely from Fashion Toast. Um, I mean, they're blogging photos of themselves and it's about their kind of personal journey. And, you know, they've created these huge audiences. Scott Schumann has been about... The Sartorialist has been about, you know, people on the street. I mean, it was, it was, it's the kind of benchmark street style blog. I mean, there, there are plenty of others. Um, so, I mean, in my case, I don't, I tend not to blog photos of myself. <laughs> um, I mean, I approach it from a, um, I, I mean, I, I approach it from the perspective of all of the things that I've done beforehand. And uh, if I had more time, I'd be doing it a lot more. But uh, uh, I'm slowly, I mean, I've started to get some advertising, but it's really just pocket money at the moment. So if I can continue to, um, to if I can continue to do it, I will. Um, but I think you'll find um, I'm not the only blogger who suffers from bloggers block or, you know, it's hard to keep up motivation when you, as I said, have to make a living and, um, you know, the audience out there. I mean, you know, premium content, um, introducing a paywall, which is obviously a dirty word <laughs> across all... Everyone's, you know, paying out on the New York Times for doing that, but I think that's something that um, some bloggers may introduce. Brian Boy himself has actually joined forces with um, Rumi Neely, uh, a Swedish blogger by the name of Elin Kling, um, and I think a couple of others, and that then all their content is now being pulled on a, um, on a blog It's based in Sweden, and they, that's basically corralling all of their, their page views, which would be, you know, in the millions and selling advertising on that. Um, I'm not sure whether it's an experiment or whether uh, the downside of that is that all their blogs now look the same. Um, and part of the reason that you love blogs is that they, they are sort of so individual. So, but you know, uh, I mean, money talks and people do have to make a living and you can't just, um, I mean, while you do it for the love, I mean, you do have to sort of have a life and you have to pay your rent. And uh, anyway, there you go. That's the end of my... <laughs> I don't know if there's any questions. Ladies and gents, Paddy Huntington. I just wanted to ask what Paddy's favourite blogs are. Oh, that's a hard one. And I, that's one of the reasons why I, I don't put a blog role, because I just, I, I, you know, people, I don't know. I mean, I look, I look at a lot of blogs, um, I guess. Uh, I mean, and some of my favourite blogs are sort of quite obscure. Um, there's a thing called Fashion Fags. Which is a lot, it's actually not even a, it's on LiveJournal, and uh, um, I mean, that's one of the sort of my go to resources. Um, I mean, Fashionology, uh, you know, if you, if you don't have time and you've got 3,000 unread, uh, you know, things in your RSS, your Google Reader, and, uh, and you just don't have time to go through and see, there's a couple of blogs that I go to that I know will have the latest, uh, you know, Fashion Copious is one. Uh, fashionology is another. Uh, I mean, many blogs just pick up what's on those, you know, those blogs or elsewhere. Um, so yeah, that's a couple. That's a couple. One of the most important ones we can ask any guest is where can we find you on the internet? Your presence on the internet. So if we were looking up your stories, where won't we find those? Oh well, just um, Frockrider. It's frockrider.blogspot.com. But if you hit frockrider.com, you hit it. But if you just Google Frockrider, and in fact, if you just Google my name, it, that's the first thing that comes up. So I may as well not have done anything else. No, everything's on it. Well, I think there's a question. Question over there. Well, right over at the back there. I'm it's just running about having cloud. such a fantastic keeping case. me fit over here. You can you can shop and listen to her talk at the same time. Uh, good evening. Um, so I'm interested. Oh, congratulations on the wonderful presentation tonight. I'm just interested what your plans are for the next like five years. My five year plan. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to. Um, 
I'd like, I mean, I'd like to grow the blog, but, uh, and, I mean, you know, bloggers are, I mean, they're micro-publishers, really. I mean, you know, obviously, every independent magazine is a publisher, but, I mean, bloggers are kind of like, as I said, one-man bands. It's very hard to do everything. It's hard to make a living. So, I mean, I'd like to, I mean, my ideal five years' time, I'd love to have a, a sort of multi-platform blog where I'm not using a million things like posters, and so, which I'm kind of close to doing. Um, and I'd like to be doing a lot more video. Um, I'd like to be doing some documentaries. Um, I'd like to be doing a lot more with the Fashion Week format because I think, I mean, that's, when I, that's where I started blogging with Fashion Weeks and that's where I kind of, that's kind of pure blogging really because you, you're blogging on the spot and you're filing in real time. I mean, sitting back at home and, you know, I mean, that's also blogging, but I mean, I just really, so um, making a living out of it would be great. Um, and my partner who's standing there, my long-suffering partner, <laughs> Would, um, would wholly concur with that. So, so yeah, so um, keep the blog going. Somehow make it self-sufficient. Get back to the shows, of course. I mean, I'd do that in a heartbeat if I could justify it, but I just can't. Um, and, uh, and just keep going. When you're starting out to establish a blog, what's the best way of attracting readers to your blog? When anyone's starting out? Um, well, look, it always helps having... It always helps having... Um, you know, someone that you know who will give you, you know, like, I mean, actually, Brian Boy is a mate. I probably should have mentioned that before. Uh, and, and he's, uh, you know, he gave my blog a great sort of kickoff in the beginning. Um, but, I mean, you know, and that's, that, that gives you a spike of readers. Uh, you know, you'll have a huge number and then you'll look at your statistics and most of them will, will never come back. Um, but, I mean, you know, I, I think you just have to kind of keep it going somehow. I mean, good content, I think, I'm a great believer in the content is king, you know, and it's, you will attract... Um, I mean, you know, you can contact people and you can, I mean, a lot of people say leaving comments on other blogs is a great way of doing it. I mean, I personally have never done that, but I know, and, and that's fair enough if you don't, if people don't know you, um, if you, you know, sign in with any of those things like Discus, whatever, and you, and you on, on your, you know, like when you, when you comment on a blog and sometimes it just has your name or anonymous, what have you, but you could actually have your, a hyperlink to your blog. Um, I mean, a lot of people say that they, they generate a lot of traffic that way. So if you go to high-profile blogs which have huge, you know, traffic like the Sartorialist or what have you, and you, and you have comments there, um, a, a number of people have had quite a lot of success that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you do feel like you're just talking to a wall <laughs> or you're just putting it out there and just wondering and, and then, you know, but it, it does, if you can stick at it, it does kind of grow. So that, that's one method. Or doing something, a fantastic story, break a story that um, gets picked up. Um, and it gets whipped around. But people have to know about it, of course. Yeah. Hi, um, that was a great talk. Um, I'm just sort of interested in what your thoughts are about blogging like as a community compared to when it becomes more of a profession because uh, people like Brian Boy and Rumi, um, they're not really leaving comments on other people's blogs. I mean, they're not what? They're not what? Leaving comments on other people's blogs. Oh, they're the, reading them, though. You they can are, guarantee. They are reading yeah, them. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, there's a bit of a conversation that happens on Twitter, but it seems to be like the bigger the blog gets, the more it, doesn't it, have time. it becomes have like a one-way sort of, a one-way well, kind I mean, of I conversation. Guess, right. So, you mean, you, you think that the bigger people get, the, the less time they have to sort of talk to. But, but I mean, you don't think that talking on Twitter and stuff is, is talking to readers? No, no, I think, I think it is talking. I think it's just interesting that some people start to turn off comments and go, I don't want to have that now that I'm bigger. I don't want to spend time moderating right. comments. But yet uh, the media always tends to focus on the idea that blogging is this community. It's all yeah. about getting to know people, which, which has well, been no, my, no, sure. my experience. I, 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 and, you know, you, you, you have an audience. I mean, that's, you should respect your audience. And, you know, you learn from your audience as well. I mean, um, you know, people leave tips, sometimes in comments, which I 
try not to publish until I've followed it up because I don't want to tip anyone else off. Or they'll email me or they'll correct stuff. Might be, you know, I mean, I could have made a mistake, you know. I mean, no one's perfect. Um, so, I mean, I try, sometimes in my own case, I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm not at the level of um, Rumi or, or Brian, but I mean, um, it's just, you know, I, I moderate everything on my um, handheld. I won't say it again. Um, <laughs> and I, sometimes I just don't have time to go back in and, and, and do it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess they should make an effort. Um, I've, I've seen Rumi comment on her comments. But when you have 300 comments, I mean, how many times? It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. She also publishes negative comments about herself, so I think that's, that's good, you know. Patty, thank you so much. That was absolutely fantastic. What an amazing insight. Patty, thank you. Thank you.